Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now I'm here. Now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. So welcome to episode 10 of Mainframe Performance Topics podcast, 234U. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in IBM and Poughkeepsie. And Martin Packer, Mainframe Performance Guy. So where have you been lately, Marna? Well, you know, Martin, it's only been a week since our last recording, so I've been nowhere. I've been sitting at my desk. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, unless you count Hursley as a worthwhile trip, which I guess I do. Okay, I hope you liked our last episode. Uh, and we've got some feedback. Why don't you tell us about that, Martin? So one of our most influential and most loved listeners gave me some feedback the other day, which I forgot to mention in the last episode, which was basically all that stereo stuff we've been mucking about with. He rather liked that, which is kind of nice when you consider we got some very early feedback where somebody complained about us using stereo. So that's a nice piece of feedback. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad all your hard work is paying off and somebody noticed it. So, loyal listeners will note, while episode 10 is not the 10th episode, it is still a significant episode number. Yes, this is an important milestone. So, you might consider the 0th episode, and we really did have an episode called Zero, as the pilot, but personally I don't. I think it stands with all the rest. Yeah, we have come a long way since then. We certainly have. So, explain the title of the episode, Marna. Yes, so finally I had what could be maybe input into the title, I don't know. Uh, we knew that this was going to be a podcast about ZOS 2.3, so uh, Martin and I both came up with the idea of 2.3, and then we consecutively went 4, you know, joke on the number 4, and also the word F-O-R, 4, and then we thought of you. So I had another idea, and we uh, decided to that we were going to go mutually on to 2.3 for you. So it is about ZOS 2.3 and other topics, and it is for you. Yeah, we could have gone with 1.2.3 episode for you. But anyway, 2.3 for you. We rather like that. It's snappier. So, so the other thing is we hope you liked the rustling paper intro that we did. We had a lot of fun with that, but you will have heard a bit of it before. Yeah, if you listened to the last episode, you heard us introduce the sound. So apparently it's a UK-US thing, how we rustle paper. Yes, it indeed is. I, I originally wrestled the eight and a half by eleven paper because I needed it for some notes the last time I had. And like the rest of the world, more or less, I used A4 paper. That might account for the difference. Yes, so you, if you listen carefully, you will be able to tell of the paper difference. So today's mainframe topic is all about the ZOS 2.3 preview, which was announced on the February 21st. Yeah, that was a big day. Uh, I've been waiting for a long time to talk about ZOS 2.3, and now that we've previewed, I've got some new functions that I wanted to include in the mainframe topic of our podcast. So tell me all about them. Well, all about them, sure, <laughs> in the quick amount of time we have for this, this podcast section. So let's go through some big ones. First of all, notice this. ZOS 2.3 is only going to run on a server that is an EC12, BC12, or higher. Get ready for it. So, okay? so the Z196 customers are going to have to move before they get to this. Exactly. So if they intend on IPLing 2.3, you better be on an EC12 or BC12 or higher. Okay? Okay, so now that we've got that one over with, let's get over to some other goodies on here. First of all, system logger. You can have long stream staging data sets that can be allocated greater than 4 gig. This is a nice little light item that uh, folks have been needing, and so we've, we've got that coming in 2.3. Another thing in 2.3, big item. I'll just call it data set encryption. Uh, but what we want to talk about specifically is that you can policy enable data sets protection for the data sets, file systems, and coupling facility structures, including list and cache structures, and that would be under the control of the CFRM policy. So data set encryption, big thing in 2.3. Uh, prepare for this one, right? Uh, there's going to be some restrictions on it. You don't want to be encrypting system data sets, right? So you don't want to be doing that, like the catalog. You don't want to encrypt that because we're going to need the catalog to help uh, decrypt data sets. So it's going to be a case of now get out of that if you make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want to make that mistake. Okay, next thing, big release in 2.3. ZFS has always been delivering us mega uh, functions in every release, and this one is really no different. So what we have, ZFS, we've moved into the area of ZEDC 
for ZFS. So just another item on the Z Enterprise Data Compression List that can be used. So you can compress both individual files and existing and new file systems. That would be the data sets. Okay, so ZFS is really happy to deliver that function to help with compression. Something I hope that you haven't had to do, but you might possibly have had to, is that this online salvage repair, or the salvage repair will be able to do while the file system is still mounted. That means better uh, application availability into that file system, as well as doing salvage at the same time. So that's a, that's a good thing, online salvaging. Next thing, we'll keep on going here, ZFS. We can allow dynamic changes of attributes on uh, ZFS attributes on a ZFS. So you can change some of the common mount options. So for instance, you can switch uh, to sysplex sharing, read, write, share, or no read, write, share dynamically. Nice thing to have, okay. Yeah. Big item, okay. Nice utility that we are having and we're including it in 2.3 is a facility that you will allow you to migrate uh, from a file system, let's say HFS to ZFS, with the source file system. Presumably it's going to be HFS because I'm hoping everybody's moving from HFS to ZFS. Um, so it doesn't have to be unmounted. So you can do an online migration, you can think of it as. Okay, and this will be available from TSO or from the Unix shell, and this will help you do a transparent move from one file system to another. So one of the things that I'm picking up as a general theme here for ZFS is being able to make the changes dynamically. Exactly. Availability, dynamic capabilities, absolutely. Uh, next thing I thought that was a cool item in coming in 2.3 is that we'll have an email support planned. Uh, in the user profile, you can have an email address. So this is really nice. You can associate a RACIF user ID with an email. So imagine how you can use this, right? So now just 2 can use an email notification when the user, in addition to the current immediate notification that they have today. Also, ZOSMF can send an email notification to the user based on what their RACIF user ID is if you're going to associate an email address with a user. Sounds good. So that, that, Yeah, it's a nice little item that we've had. Also in JES2, this is kind of a smaller item, I think, but I think it's a great little item, is the delimiter keyword for SISIN has always been two characters. And we need more granularity there. So now we'll be able to have up to 18 characters for the delimiter keyword in JES2 JCL for simplification. This is nice. I, I think it's great. And we mm. can do more description in 18 characters than we ever could with two, right? Well, quite. Okay, keep on going here. We've got SCRT. Uh, you know that from your uh, reports that you give, uh, IBM every month, and this is planned to be a component of ZOS now. Also, we'll have new support in SCRT so that we can enable ISVs that are licensed to generate their own ISV unique SCRT report as well. So you can use it for vendors as well. It occurs to me that if we're making this better for vendors, the more of them will use the IFA usage macro, and that will be good for us too. Yeah, that will be good, and so that will be interesting to see how who's using that. But yeah, all right. And now the biggest thing, drum roll. We have a very large migration action coming in two three, which I can now talk about. Now that we've previewed it, uh, we are going to be automatically starting uh, ZOSMF fairly late in the IPL. Hopefully after one VS and TCP IP are up, but we'll be checking that they're up, of course, before we start ZOSMF. And remember, this is a lot like when we started Health Checker automatically in two one. Uh, except for there's a lot more stuff you need to do. <laughs> so auto start of ZUSMF coming in 2.3. There are some absolutely required and very important migration actions that you need to do with this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to strongly recommend right now on your 2.1 and 2.2 systems you start ZUSMF. So does, does this mean we'll be starting ZUSMF on every system? Because the current set of data I've got for a customer, they have it started on one system and not the rest. Correct. This is where the important migration action comes in. If you don't do anything, it is going to try to start on every system. And yet you should probably have, um, if you're all going to play into the same uh, environment for ZOSMF, you only want one of them to be started. And you want the other ones to be uh, what we're calling now remote. So you want one primary ZOSMF possibly on your sysplex and the other ones need to be remote. But by default, they're all going to try to be primary. Of course, this is not in a multi-tenant kind of situation, so those have different considerations. But if you're just a regular old user, let's say you have a two-system sysplex, 
one's the USMF and the other one just to connect to it in a secondary or sorry, not secondary, uh, a remote situation, you do need to do a migration action so that they are not both starting. Okay, read this information carefully. It will be a rather important migration action that everybody needs to do. And so today, start ZOSMF, strongly recommend on 2.1 and 2.2. Then when you get to 2.3, you can just have smaller migration actions you need to do. Sounds like good advice. Yeah, okay, it's really important. So the situation that you talked about, Martin, where you have only seen one ZOSMF and a cisplex, you want to still continue to do that and you will need to do something to make it continue to do that. Right. Because by default, it's not gonna exactly look like that. All right, so uh, that was the small list of uh, new preview items. I'm sure we'll be talking about other two, three items coming in future podcasts. You've forgotten an item. Oh, I did, I forgot an item that I really did wanna talk about. Uh, just briefly is we announced in one little sentence in the preview, eight character TSO user IDs. So get ready for it. It will have widespread changes that are needed. So it's not necessarily something that you want to do straight out of the box. First thing, uh, you will want to read about it and see what you need to do, but we will have support for it. The mind boggles. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we also have some SODs, uh, if I can call them that, rather unfortunate acronym for Statement of Direction. We've got some of those as well. First one is is not big shakes. We talked about that in our last episode, and that is that we're going to, you know, extend the server packed offering so that we can support both not SMP packaged and SMP packaged or a combination and mix of both of them in a single server pack package. Initially, server pack is still intending to be remained as an ISPF dialogue, but we'll see where that goes in the future. And also we had announced in this preview, and John Neal's talked about it in our last podcast, is the ability not just to install one of these types of uh, software instances, but also to package them. And that helps us uh, come together as a community between ISVs and IBM. All right, next one. Hold on to your hat. It's, it's coming. We've announced that the release after version 2.3 is the last one to support HFS. That means removal for HFS is planned for 2021. I get this question every single release, and so we're getting way out in front of it right here. The release after 2.3 is the last one you can run HFS on. As a reminder, you have that utility that we're adding in 2.3 where you can do online conversion from the HFS to the ZFS if you like. So you really need to get ready now if you're not already there now. So will that utility be available in previous releases? Um, today, the intention is that it's only available on 2.3. So if you do need that utility, it would not hurt to plan to use it in 2.3 if you need it. Right. But if you're coming from, let's say, 2.2 to a release later, you have to do the migration the, the old-fashioned way. Um, that's the current plan, yes. But, you know, maybe things would change. But right now, they're not intending to change like that. So if you do need that online utility, 2.3 would be a release to migrate to at this point because I see no rollback and plan for that. Right. All right. If the HFS uh, removal isn't big enough coming in the release after 2.3, here's something coming in the future. We have not given a date on this. We're just saying it's the future. You new guys knew it was coming. Uh, we're going to discontinue delivery of products and service on magnetic tape. You will still have the DVD available if you need physical delivery, but tape will be gone. Again, we've been pushing for this for years. You guys have been moving to it for years. Uh, we really want everyone to do electronic delivery if they are able to. If they have to get physical, you need to support DVD. So I'm just reflecting, this is the first time we've actually done a preview or preview announcement or announcement uh, piece in this podcast series yeah uh given that this uh we haven't <laughs> we've uh, two years between releases and we haven't yet have a full year under our belt for podcasts this is the first time we've import uh announced some important sods that came out of previews right so so i, I think one of the obvious things from from this is that some of these are going to need talking through in a lot more detail in later episodes I agree. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on some of the ZFS stuff, on the online conversion utility from HFS to ZFS. We've got some great stuff coming in here. So it will give me plenty of mainframe topics to uh, have for fodder in the future. And remember, this is only a preview. Oh, yes. There's more coming. When we GA announce, we'll have even more stuff. And we'll be sure to cover that when we have the proper announcement.
So today's performance topic is the subject of memory management and I'm very pleased to have as our guest my good friend Elpida Tsortsatos from ZOS Development. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you know, I've been working in memory management in ZOS uh, for most of my career. Uh, lately, uh, also working in analytics and Spark and cognitive computing. And I'm using my in-memory computing ex expertise to lead those fields in analytics on, on ZOS. And I think your career is roughly speaking the same as my career, at least duration-wise. So, so that's quite a while to give away no secrets. So what I want to do to start with is to review the way things were long ago when we had this thing called UIC updating. So, so I'm going to bounce three concepts off you and see how you, they grab you. So I'm aware of page level UIC. I'm aware of system high UIC and I'm aware of something called average high UIC. Now most customers probably really only know about average high UIC because that's the number that's printed on an RMF report or is in the type SMF type 71 record. So why don't you tell us a little bit about page UIC and high UIC and how they've evolved over the years. So first of all, UIC stands for unreferenced interval count. And really, the UIC used to measure how long in seconds a page has remained unreferenced, right? right. So a high UIC count would show well, low contention for memory, and, and a low UIC count would show that there was a lot of contention from, from memory, right? Um, a system high UIC is the highest of the central storage page frame UICs, and the average value is the average of the interval of the highest page UIC. Um, so when reference to central storage are high, the system high UIC is low. The number of seconds between references is low. Therefore, the page is being referenced frequently. When references to st central storage are low, the system high UIC is high. The number of seconds between references is high, therefore the page is being referenced infrequently. Right, so you would think with something measured in seconds that you would be calculating those things every second. That was true uh, quite a while ago, and uh, since we moved to large memory, we uh, the memory management in ZOS has uh, quietly involved quite a bit, I should say. We went, when we only had two gigs of memory that we could support back in the pre-Z architecture days, uh, we only had 31-bit uh, real storage memory. We used to do those every seconds. Uh, when we went to Z architecture, we actually changed our design because it was cost prohibitive to do this UIC updates for every page, every frame in the system, I should say, every second. So therefore, we reduced the frequency of how often we um, updated the UIC and we went to 10 seconds uh, with Z architecture when we increased the amount of real memory in the ZOS partition from 2 gig to 128 gig. Right, and you would see those numbers as UICs with a zero on the end in RMF to reflect that. That's right, because we had to multiply those numbers by 10 seconds now, right? Because the, the frequency of the update was every 10 seconds. So that's a good example of an optimization to enable scaling. Correct. Uh, and then, uh, in addition to that, when we moved from 128 gig up to 4 terabytes, which is what we support today, we further reduced. As a matter of fact, we do not do any UIC um, updates today, and we sort of estimate, we use other metrics to estimate contention in the system. Even though in the RMF reports you see, still see references to the UIC count, it doesn't quite represent what it used to. Right. Right. Today, we we wanted to not have to incur the cost of the UIC updates. So when we went to four terabytes, even doing it every ten seconds was was costly and prohibitive, uh, prohibiting from scaling to even larger amounts of memory, which is certainly a strategic direction. So therefore, now the metrics that we keep uh, for UIC are only kept when we actually have high memory contention in the system and we page. Now, this, this actually reflects what I see uh, in RMF. When I plot UIC by time of day, 
it actually seems to behave very much like the old migration age for expanded storage. Exactly. So basically the way it works today, if uh, there's no memory contention in the system and the system is not paging, you usually see a UIC, um, system high UIC of 65,000, right, 64K, which is the highest UIC, meaning that you, you really have no paging at all in the system. And as memory contention grows, we start, uh, an SRM asks RSM to start paging and evicting pages for memory to make available frames in the system. We actually, today, we loop over our page frame table, which is four terabytes divided by 4K big these days. And we actually look at each frame. And if, if the page is, it hasn't been referenced since the last time, we actually had to do paging in the system then we consider that page eligible to be invicted for memory. And again, we do that process. We move along this page frame table as until we satisfy the number of frames that we have to make available to the system again. And at the point where we stop, we keep a cursor. So the next time we need to page, we start at that cursor moving through that table again. And the UIC today is an estimation of how long it takes us to actually make one loop through the table, right? So right. basically, if you're not changing, the UIC is high because we're not moving through through that table quickly. If there's high memory uh, pressure, then we're moving through that table very quickly and the UIC is, is lower. So that's actually very much like the way the old mig migration age and expanded storage management worked but obviously there'll be a few quirks in there that, that are a bit different but all of this basically says that uh, we, we've evolved things for scalability and that's a very good message for our listeners to to take home now i remember going back that we used to take uic's for pages and throw them into buckets so in the mid 1990s i persuaded rmf to report the high impact, medium impact, low impact frames and available frames. So how, how is that done today? So again, today, those are estimates, right? So um, let me first give you the definition of the uh, high, low, um, sorry, high, medium and low impact frames. Low impact frames were frames that you can still without really impacting the performance of the workload because they had a very high UIC uh, count, meaning they hadn't been referenced for quite a while, right? right? Medium impact frames were the kind of frames where you'd have some impact to performance if you had to invict them for memory. And high impact frames, obviously, if you had gotten to that point where you're invicting high impact frames, those were frames that had relatively low UIC count and therefore would have a great impact uh, to, to performance if they were invicted for memory. Right. Now, you use the past tense in all that. Yes. So today we actually time ourselves, as I said before, on how, so if we had to, let's say in one second, uh, loop through our page frame table five times, then we use percentages saying, well, that's, that's a time of high memory pressure. So therefore we have a greater percentage of frames we put in the um, high impact frames bucket. Uh, and then a, uh, some percentage in the medium um, impact bucket, and then a much lower percentage in the low impact bucket. If, for example, um, you know, it took us hours or days to loop through the page frame table to make one one run through the page frame table, which happens a lot if you don't have a lot of paging in the system, right? Right. Then you have a our estimates, the way the algorithm that we use to estimate the percentage of frames that belong into the low impact bucket will be much greater in that scenario, uh, meaning that you have a lot of uh, unreferenced frames uh, because we haven't gone through that table for quite a while and because there is no memory pressure in the system. Right, so that, that says to me that the relationship between actual page frame ages and the sizes of these buckets has got looser. Yes, that is correct. It's an approximation and an estimation. Now, I, I have to say one thing. I, I tell customers today that 
UIC in, in terms of, of its values of importance for the system because of these approximations and because um, it's not as important anymore. What's important is to actually look at the available frame count in the system and also when we introduce technology such as Spark technology, right, the reason that we had an I referenced in interval count was because it was very important that we chose, when we chose a page to invict, right, it was very important that we chose frames that haven't, hadn't been referenced for a while because the latency when you had a demand read to bring those back in was high. So if you chose a frame that was very frequently referenced and then you had to do many demand paging and impacted the performance of the workload. Mm. Now, one of the reasons why that granularity is no longer readed, the Spark technology is, is, um, has great random access read latency, right? So even if we were, even if we were to pick a frame that was very frequently referenced, uh, the demand paging is so fast that it wouldn't have the same impact on the workload. So I guess right. what I'm trying to, the message I'm trying to to make here is, in the old days, because of the paging technology, it was important that you actually, uh, when you chose to evict a, a page or a frame from memory, that you chose one that was low impact and, and in terms, you know, it wasn't frequently referenced. And in today's right. technology, even with our approximations, we don't need to be as accurate because even when we pick a frame that's frequently referenced, that random um, access paging from Flash is very, very quick. Right. So you're making the assumption here that customers have Flash. And I guess that's our design point. Well, so I, I know uh, quite a uh, a good number of our customers have flash and i know our strategic direction going forward is it's with flash technologies right in, in order right. to support large amounts of memory so if you were uh, interested in supporting large zos partitions particularly for doing analytics and in-memory computing right uh, i know spark which is which is one of the most popular analytic frameworks uh, is certainly uh, cent central to that and doing analytics is in-memory computing and, and if you wanted to support very large partitions in, in your uh, data centers, I would certainly recommend using Flask technologies for paging right, when you and, do and need that, to page. Right, and that's something I tend to recommend. There are a few customers I know who don't have Flash and uh, I think it's important for them to understand the, the changing environment and, and, and the value of Flash. So... Just to pick up on one thing you said, available memory. That's something I recommend customers look at in RMF. I also recommend they not just at the average available memory, but also the minimum, because workloads like sort can rapidly drive the usage of memory so systems get to the point of having not, not much free. But that's probably a topic for another day to talk about sort. But certainly, it seems to me that people should be tracking not just the average, but also the minimum. I agree. You should have enough available frames on what we call the available frame queue to accommodate not only your steady state workload, but also to accommodate workload picks. And, and you just gave an example, but also to accommodate dumps, right? Right. And you and I have worked on, on, on dumps. Right, so there's there's a nice uh, white paper from the Washington System Center that talks about ensuring, you know, that you have enough memory capacity not only to run your pick workloads but also to accommodate dumps. And looking at the minimum uh, AFC or available frame count uh, is is a good starting point for doing that. In, in ensuring that you have enough memory on your systems to accommodate your peak workloads as, as well as, as SVC dumps. So maybe that whole topic of dumps and dump management is a subject for another episode. Sure, I will be very glad to come back. Excellent. So the other thing I think we should talk about, maybe just for completeness, but I think it's very important, is large frames. Large frames are very important, not only for the Z platform, but, but also in the industry. As working sets of applications have grown over the last decade, uh, certainly with, with the advent of 64-bit both real and virtual memory. The dynamic address translation part of running an application, and that's the part where, you, you know, we translate a virtual address that the application is written into a real address that the processor can understand and do the computations on. It's on the very critical path of, uh, so this, this memory dynamic address translation is on the critical performance path of every application. 
So if we can reduce the amount it takes to do this dynamic address translation, then we can improve overall performance. The hardware itself has a cache called the translation lookaside buffer located very close to the processor chip that actually caches virtual to real translation. So this So that's expense that's expensive memory and there's not a lot of it. Right. And even though the working set of applications ha has grown tremendously over the past decade, the TLB size hasn't because, again, it has to be, it's on premium real estate and it has to be close to the processor. So the uh, latency access is, is short for getting to those TLB mappings. Uh, one way of increasing the amount of the working set that is represented by the TLB's large pages. In, in our platform, large pages are one uh, meg, but also uh, we also introduced the two gig page size. And what that means is with the same size TLB, now you can represent a much bigger working set for the application. And just to simplify it and give a simple example, let's say if your TLB could accommodate 100 uh, virtual to real mappings, that would be 104K pages in the case where the page size is 4K, but when the page size is one megabyte, then you have 400 megabytes that you can represent. So certainly a much bigger part percentage of your working set, so therefore you reduce your TLB misses, which are costly, and you right. improve your application performance. So the 4K one it looks positively pathetic, whereas the 1 meg and even more strongly the 2 gig look, look pretty nice. Yes. And by the way, we've seen real performance benefits from uh, utilizing large pages, both in Java workloads and DB2 workloads, not only in our internal performance benchmarks, but also with, with our customers. So there's a parameter governing some of this large frame area. Correct. Um, so there's a parameter governing the amount of your memory that would be allocated as one megabyte fixed pages. We also introduced one megabyte pageable large pages, and, and for that, you don't need to specify a parameter. For the fixed, uh, you have to specify the Eleferia parameter in IA6XX, and that's because we want to have an upper limit on the amount of memory that you can afford to have fixed on your systems, right? Right. Um, yes. And also to, to provide for contiguity that's required by the architecture for large pages. Um, so DB2, for example, DB2 for their buffer pools, um, one megabyte fixed pages gives you the per best performance uh, because certainly you get the dynamic address translation performance benefits of one megabyte pages, but also by having them fixed, you avoid the fix and not fix performance path cost uh, every time you have to do I.O. into those buffer pools. Right. Java, on the other hand, you know, they exploit large pages for the Java heaps and they can certainly benefit from pageable large pages because they don't do any I.O. Um, into their Java heap. ZOS will pick uh, an initial size today of one-eighth of your online memory for pageable large pages. And if you overflow that and we have available memory in the Eleferia, we'll use the available Eleferia memory to also back pageable one meg pages. Uh, we also do the same if you overflow your 4K memory pool and before we page, we'll actually look at the Eleferia and see if you have any memory that's available there and um, use the one megs as, as 4K or demote them as we, uh, as we call it and, and use them as, as 4Ks if uh, there's um, a system shortage for 4K frames on the system. And I would imagine it'd be quite difficult to get clumps of 4Ks back together again. So, yes, um, we, so preferably the things that we put, that we back in the Eleferia for 4K pages is, is pageable, uh, pageable frames, frames that we can reclaim. If, if, for example, the dynamics of the workload on the system changes and now you do have a lot of 4Ks in, in the memory pool, but you still have some of them sitting in the Eleferia because when the memory got allocated, that's all we had. But now you're getting demand for one pages in the system. We, if those pages are pageable, we'll try to do frame exchanges and, you know, back and back in the 4K memory pool now that has available frames and coalesce and use the Eleferia frames that were used for 4Ks to coalesce them back to one megabyte. Now there is cases where 
we cannot do that, right? If if we sure. have back 4K page fix frames for non-swappable address spaces in that area, then we cannot reclaim those frames, right? Right. So if I can just summarize, there's two things I take away from this, which I, when I contemplated this whole item, want, wanted to share with our audience. The first thing is that memory management has evolved tremendously over the decades to support larger and larger memory sizes. And the second one I think I would observe is memory has always been an interesting topic and it's not really got any simpler in many ways. It still remains an interesting and nice complex topic. Yes, that that is true, but we we continue as we evolve, right? We continue to scale up and we continue, although it's a big challenge certainly for my team, we continue to improve performance from a memory management perspective for the system and for the applications, transparently for the applications. Not only have we been capable of scaling the system and will continue to scale the system even in the future uh, releases of ZOS, but also we've done it in a way that also improves uh, application performance. And, and that's really the uh, one of the things that I think we the challenges that we addressed very very nicely in in ZOS. Yeah, yes, from the outside in the field, I, I think I think we do. So, so thank you, Peter, very much for your time and in sharing all this with us, and look forward to having you on another episode soon. We already have a topic here to pounce on you for. Sure, I'm looking forward to coming back. Thank you. Now it's time for our topics topic, which is iOS automation. And if it's iOS, uh, I'm not talking about it. So, Martin, you got to talk about this one. I am not an iOS person. So, so what are we talking about and why are we talking about this? So the state of the art has evolved somewhat in terms of automation on iPhones and iPads. And it's beginning to make the operating system much more grown up in terms of things you can do. So, so for example... It's a good time to be talking about the ability to build tailored apps from simple ones, just composing apps from little building blocks. And it's also, as another theme, good time to talk about ways of automating to be able to do something close to bulk processing. I hesitate to say batch on iOS, but having just got those words out, I guess it's not unreasonable. And the whole point about this sort of thing is it saves time. The other point, to be utterly frank, is it satisfies the inner geek in me. So so that's why I was keen to have this item at this point. All right. So we'll talk Apple. So we'll continue on with this Apple topic. But as everybody knows, I, I'm not an Apple person. So I'll just keep on as the uh, dummy in this conversation here. So what enables all this capability that we're talking about? Right. So there are a number of things around. So the first one is something called X callback URL for inter-app communication and basically as the name suggests well the url bit anyway suggests that we are using the url protocol as a way of tapping a particular app on the shoulder so for example for an application called omnifocus you might have a url that begins with omnifocus colon so that's the protocol part of a url as anybody would recognize it so the X callback URL mechanism allows one app to call another, which begins to allow you to compose things together. And actually, the callback piece of the name suggests, and indeed this is the case, that the called app can actually return information to the caller. It's all very well to tap another app on the shoulder, but if you can't get any results back, then that limits your, your ability to automate. And actually, it's still better than that, because the, uh, the X callback URL specification allows separate responses for success and failure. So you know if application A calls application B, that application B will return some error information if a bad thing happens. So this actually originated in the Drafts app, which is an app I use for quickly entering small snippets of text, although it's a bit better than that, and was adopted by a bunch of third-party apps. And I'm going to call them first-rate apps because, to my mind, if an app doesn't support X callback URL when it when it should, that doesn't make it a very good app at all. So a good example of a of a first rate app would be OmniFocus, which is what I use for task management. It's also available in a class of app called Launchers. So there are a couple I know of and use. One is called Launcher and one is called Launch Center Pro. Now they can invoke a URL on 
the iPhone on or the iPad, and that URL can indeed be an X callback URL. So it could kick off a whole stream of application interactions just by a single icon tap. So this X callback thing is, is really nice because it enables you to glue things together and maybe you can get from a single tap in a launcher to a very complicated workflow happening. So that's one piece of componentry. Yeah, I know you're getting into more complication, but I want to, uh, at the very highest level, could I think of an X callback URL inter-app communication? That's a mouthful. In the very simplest of terms, without getting too much into the apps that you're calling and what's coming back and invoking a workflow and everything, is that like a REST API? It's very much like a REST API. It's not really quite the same kind of spec, but it's in spirit very much the same thing. You say okay. by encoding in a URL, a genuine URL, what you want to have happen. It's just that the protocol handler or protocol name directs you to the, the right app. So, yes, okay. it's very similar. Okay. That, that helps me understand that one a lot better. Okay. Right. And the next thing which a lot more people will be familiar with is JavaScript. So to mention a drafts app again, you can do a lot of automation in the drafts app and probably one or two others as well using JavaScript, which is a programming language everybody knows from the web who does web programming. And in the language category, again, you can even do Python on iOS now. I'm sure you could do it on Android too. But the two apps that I use that can do Python, the first one is called Editorial, which is actually what I use to do most of my writing. And the nice thing here is you can build essentially macros or scripts to do things like, for example, checking whether footnote references lead to anywhere or whether they're, they're dangling. So that's very nice. It's really geared around automating some of the tedium in writing. And from the same guy, his name is Ole Zorn, by the way, is an app called Pythonista, which basically is a general Python programming environment, both Python 2 and Python 3. So that, that's rather nice. So that also, and both of those enable you to kick off X callback URLs, by the way, including to places like Drafts and places like OmniFocus. Now, the jewel in the crown in iOS terms is a very nice app called Workflow which if you follow me on Twitter, you will see me making lots of references to. And actually, this is the thing that unlocks automation for an awful lot of people because it's a very simple visual builder with building blocks to build flows with data flowing between them and uh, the ability to set and interrogate variables and tickle other apps. And actually, what you can do is you can uh, get the contents of a URL. So the ability to go and get stuff from the web is... is and Actually, it's all the HTTP semantics now, so you could do a put as well. So Workflow runs primarily on an iOS device, whether iPad or iPhone, but actually you can kick off flows. You can't compose them, but you can kick off flows from the Apple Watch, which is something I, I quite like as well. So the idea, I can automate a load of stuff by a tap on um, what's called a complication on my watch face is, is quite nice. So to give a simple example, I actually built a workflow about a year ago for a friend of mine called dictate into a Dropbox file. So that basically had two components. It basically had a stage which uh, took dictation and then another stage that go and took some text obviously the result of that dictation and stuck it in, in the Dropbox file. So that's a very simple case. More recently, I built a more complex case, which I won't go into the details of how it works, but essentially what the workflow does is it adds a new task to OmniFocus, pointing to a new file in editorial, well, basically a document editorial, and that document, uh, which is going to be written in Markdown, because that's what editorial knows best, is actually going to point back to the OmniFocus task. So the idea here is, if I decide to work on something, I need to give myself a task that points to some notes about it, and the notes obviously need to refer to the task in in a completely different app that, that the notes are all about. So that's a very nice, that was probably about seven or eight steps in workflow, and actually with the latest release, it's probably down to about three or four. So you can build some complicated workflows, and I've only begun to scratch the surface of, of that. So that's a very nice capability. Now, something Marlon will know a little bit more about is... <laughs> yeah, finally something I can, uh, I can understand here. <laughs> right. So I'm going to mention three names, and they are basically all ways of doing web-based automation as opposed to on-device automation. So if this, then that, which we mentioned in the last episode, 
uh, Zapier, I want to call it Zapier, but apparently it's Zapier like Rapier and Stringify. Those are three web-based automation tools with endpoints in iOS, which uh, I, I use to some extent. So for example, Stringify will send me a notification on my phone giving me the weather for the day in the morning. That's one example. The other example is actually a bit more of an experiment, which is if this then that on my iPhone kicks off a hello world flow every 2.30. It basically says, hello, it's 2.30 and the date is this. Now, it could do a lot more. So, so basically at this point, I want, wanted to scratch the itch called, can I get something automatically happening on my phone at a specific time of day or a specific day? So that's really what that experiment was about. So these web automation services, if this then that, Zapier and Stringify are very nice. And it's not an either or actually. You can have workflow, for example, interact with if this then that, Zapier and Stringify. And the final piece of enabling technology is I have an email client for most of my email accounts called Airmail. And what's really nice about Airmail, quite apart from its high level of customizability, is actually it can take the contents of an email and kick off automation. So for example, it can take the body of the email, it can take the sender, it can take the title, and you can do things with those. Basically, it can kick off a workflow flow with each of those elements of the email separated by some kind of text separator. So you would have to get workflow to unpack those elements, uh, but it's very nicely done. So what it means to me is I can do more with email because I can automate stuff based on incoming emails just by asking it to uh, take a custom action. So there's a whole bunch of things I've rattled through here, which are pieces of componentry that have in the last year or two really advanced the ability to automate stuff in iOS. So you talked a lot about these tools and capabilities that you have. Did did any of these come from Apple? I mean, none of these or, or people in the community just started these? Right. So there are a couple of things that are worth noting, which are from Apple. And they are widgets, which most users of iOS will be familiar now with, and app extensions, which many people unfortunately won't be but for example in safari you can you can invoke an app extension to take the contents of a web page and go and do stuff probably kicking off via drafts or more likely via um, pythonista or, 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 or workflow so that basic set of app extension points is from apple but by and large everything i've talked about so far is actually from third-party app developers and there's some very nice examples, particularly around X callback URL, where app developers work with each other. So, for example, the Omni group putting in X callback URL in OmniFocus has enabled a lot of integrations to be built. But that's got nothing to do with Apple. So that's just OmniFocus adopting um, the, the spec generated by the author of drafts. So there's a lot of third party uh, stuff going on, which is really nice to see. But there is a little bit that came from Apple. Oh, that's good. Maybe you'll contribute something in there, huh? Uh, maybe one day. Maybe I'll just tie, <laughs> maybe maybe I'll just do my usual thing, which is tie down hapless developers with with endless requests for enhancements. Okay, nothing wrong with being a user or a, a person that opens up requirements. Absolutely. So it's it's somebody. I mean, the, the, a lot of the reason for talking about this, quite apart from this being a pet topic of mine, is. I think the state of the art has advanced enormously in terms of automation capabilities on iOS. Uh, but these capabilities aren't really well known outside what I'm going to call iOS geek circles. Yeah, so uh, it's good you're talking about them so that we can get them better known. Uh, but it seems they're also pretty easy to use as well. So once you know about them, you could be able to use them fairly quickly. Right. So so I think there is, there is something for everybody in terms of skill level here. So... For example, if this and that is very easy to use, you wouldn't say that JavaScript and Python are necessarily that easy for an average user. But most people, when they get going with workflow, they find it incredibly easy and satisfying to build flows from it. So, yes, generally speaking, there's some very easy to use powerful stuff. Uh, and there is some really rather more geeky stuff if you're into, into programming, as I certainly am. So the other bit about this is this 
I've found has made me more productive on iOS. So I might be able to go to more places with my iPad Pro and leave the laptop behind because I can get stuff done and I can get stuff done a lot more quickly. So, so this stuff makes me more productive. And if you're an iOS user, it could make you more productive as well. So yes, it will make Apple people more productive, but I, this isn't for me. I'm not Apple, so one, <laughs> I'll one, wait. Yes, yes, I'll wait too, because one day you'll see the light. Do we have some customer requirements, Mona? Oh, we do. And I think this might even be a customer requirement you might even like. Idea customer requirements we discussed are neither committed nor indicated that they are even going to be in plan. They may not be even a good idea to do. They are simply two people talking about customer requirements publicly available for viewing and ones that catch your eyes. By no means should every requirement they talk about be construed as anything that the IBM Corporation is even thinking of doing. Our opinions are our own, your mileage may vary, void, or prohibited, and items displayed or a serving suggestion, part of a nutritious breakfast, and past results are not indicative of future performance. We have a new customer requirement in RFA Developer Works, number 99998. And it's called BCPII Support for Additional Properties. State of it is open. What I really like about this is it looks like people are using BCPII, which is one of my favorite functions, and they want us to provide even more tech information, such as would concern storage. So we've got storage total installed, storage uh, HSA, storage customer, storage central, storage available, the whole thing. I think this is a nice suite of new information we can pull. This is something I, I really would like BCPII to do, and I'd particularly like it if RMF got around to supporting this one, because then those numbers would be in something like the Type 71 record and maybe the Type 70, and people could keep track of how much memory there was on, the, on each machine. So I think that's rather nice. Let's hope we can do this one. Yeah, I do like it. So, out and about, places we expect to be speaking at, etc. it says here. So, what have you got? Well, i got the same thing I had last week, which is that I will be in Share in San Jose, California, March 6th and 10th. So, same there. Boy, you get to go to all the fun places. Again, I've got nothing. Pity poor me. As always, we welcome your feedback, so please let us know in many ways that are possible how you feel about our podcast or ideas for future topics. So now we come to the on the blog section of our podcast. Martin, what have you got out there? Between last week and this, I've actually managed to get out quite a colorful blog post called DDF Networking. So one of the things I was working on last week and a bit the week before was using DB2 Accounting Trace to try and draw out the literal network of devices and gateways of work coming into DB2 via DDF. So that was kind of a fun one to write. I got to take a real customer estate and to snip out little bits and pieces of the network so you can't work out who it is, which illustrates some of the data that enables you if you process the 101s in the right way to look at uh, the DDF connectors, whatever they may be. So that was a nice one to write. Yeah, and it did. It, it was beautiful. I don't have a past blog, but I am going to imminently going to be putting out a blog. And in my blog, I will be talking about telling you that the S&P fixed caps for ZOS 2.3 are ready, rolled out, and ready for customers to start using. I'll put the individual fixed cat names in the show notes and also in my blog, but there is no reason why you cannot now start to prepare for ZOS 2.3 with your S&P fixed cat reports. Sounds good. So, how to contact us. Uh, my name is Marna.Wally on Twitter, and also I am mwally at us.ibm.com if you prefer email. And I'm Martin Packer on Twitter and Martin underscore Packer at uk.ibm.com for email. So it goes.